Hey, good morning, those of you here in the worship center, as well as those out in the lobby and those watching online as well. Um, and speaking of those online, I want to give a special shout out to Jason and Jen Brody, who I know watch every single Sunday online and they live in Hawaii. So how cool is that? So aloha, Brodies, and it is 6 a.m. right now for you. So thank you for waking up and being with us, and thank you for all that are watching online, outside, and in here as well. Hey, grab your Bibles, either on your phone or in the seat rack in front of you, or the Bible that you brought, and I want you to turn to the wonderful Old Testament book of Numbers. We're going to look specifically at Numbers chapter 16 as we continue week five of our series on Numbers. I don't know if you're like me, but I have never appreciated the book of Numbers. <laughs> and I'm one of your pastors. <laughs> but over the last few weeks, this book has become precious to me. It is such a, a powerful book of God's nature and character revealed, his grace shown, which we'll once again see today, and even the challenge conviction that I felt as we've gone through the, these chapters. So I know we're in for a treat here today. So Numbers chapter 16. I also want to give a shout out to uh, our Israel team who returned Friday night safe and sound. So welcome back those of you that were in Israel. Pastor Eric Wakeling led that team so well. He said he woke up this morning at 2.30 in the morning, just wide awake. So give grace to Eric when uh, you see him around campus uh, here today. Um, and then also, too, I want to thank those that were at uh, our school auction last night, Calvary Christian School. We had a wonderful time here on campus raising money for our school. Calvary Christian School, if you don't know, uh, is one of the primary ways that we disciple people and kids here on this campus. Over a couple hundred kids every single day, Monday through Friday, uh, here uh, at Calvary. So praise the Lord for our faithful teachers, David Seidman and our leadership. And so thank you for those that gave last night. It was wonderful. And then one more shout out, and then I promise we'll get into number 16. But uh, my mom and dad are here from Santa Cruz. I just want to thank you guys for being here today. That was great. So Numbers chapter 16. Look specifically, scroll down almost to the end of the chapter to verse 48. It's not going to mean a ton to you when we read it the first time. But if the Holy Spirit does his work and I partner with him well, uh, by the time we end our sermon, uh, verse 48 will really jump out to you. But I want you to read it just off uh, the top here as uh, I teach. Uh, Numbers 16, verse 48, simply says this. And he took his stand between the dead and the living. So that plague was brought to a halt. Oh, you have no idea how powerful that is. <laughs> but let's get into it. Go back to verse 1 of Numbers chapter 16. To catch you up, that this is about 1,500 years or so before Jesus is born. 
Numbers is the account of the, the covenant people, the nation of Israel, wandering in the wilderness. They had been delivered two years prior from captivity with the Egyptians. They flee there, parting of the Red Sea, Moses leading them through. They, they wind up at Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments are delivered to the people through Moses. And then they find themselves, as you see on this map, wandering in the desert. Now, there's different places where we think Mount Sinai might be. This is one account or idea of where it could have been. And as you see that arrow of Mount Sinai, it's about an 11-day walk from Mount Sinai up north to the promised land, Canaan. 11 days. Guess how long it took the Israelites? 40 years. <laughs> Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Imagine those kids and, and their repeating of that. So it took them 40 years. Why? Because of their rebellion, their constant murmuring, complaining, falling into sin. The nation of Israel was immature. They saw God show up in powerful ways and they forgot it quickly. They were stubborn. They wanted to do their own thing. They said, yeah, God, we like your way, but we like our ways better. None of us can relate to that, can we? <laughs> this is a mirror into my heart as well. And here in chapter 16, we once again see an account of stiff-necked people, stubborn people, particularly individuals. Look at verse 1 here and then read just a couple of verses with me. It says, now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi with Dathan and Ibram, the sons of Eliab and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben. They took men and they stood before Moses. Together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men, men of renown, they assembled together against Moses and Aaron. And they said to them, you've gone far enough for all the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Okay, we'll stop right there. So you get like a, a quick overview of what's happening. These guys that have names that are hard to pronounce come before Moses. They gather another 250 leaders and they complain, Moses, why you? Why are you the one that gets to make all the decisions and to call all the shots? This is one of the first recorded potential church splits in human history. Mount Sinai Baptist Church is about to become first Mount Sinai and second Mount Sinai Baptist Church. We read about these guys, Korah and Dathan, Ibram and on. Let me give you a little background of of who these guys were by showing you this map. In Numbers chapter 2, God is specifically laying out how the nation of Israel, all million plus people, how they're to set up their camp. They're to put in the middle of their camp, wherever they go, wherever they wander in the wilderness, they're to put the presence of God, the tabernacle, right in the center of their camp. All the nation is to have their lives literally geographically pointed towards God. 
Isn't that cool? And then God has specific ways that he wants each of the tribes and their families and their kids and their grandkids. He has specific instructions of how they are to camp, who their neighbors are supposed to be, who their block that they're supposed to bless will be. And so you can see here on the map that the tabernacle's in the middle. In the center to the right is Moses, Aaron, and the priest. They're the ones that are given access to get into the presence of God on behalf of the people. In that inner circle, you see some other names. At the bottom of that inner circle, or that inner square, I should say, you see Kohath. Everyone see Kohath? Do you see it? Are you there? Okay, like six of you are with me. This is going well. Okay, okay, I see you now. Um, so Kohath is right there on that map. Oh, if we could throw it back up, if you could. Um, so we have Kohath there. That is where Korah is from. That is where Korah is camping. You follow that? Now, we also read about Dathan and Ebram and On. They are grandsons of Reuben. Reuben camps to the bottom of that tent area. You see it's the camp of Reuben. You have Gad, Simeon, and then you have Reuben's family. Quite a lot of people, huh? It's the size of, I don't know, um, let's see. Would Tustin be bigger than this? About 70,000 people in Tustin. So it's like, it's like, like two-thirds of Tustin right there. So you have uh, Korah camping here in the inner circle near the tabernacle. And then you have Reuben's grandkids also camping just not far from that. And then let me give you a little background on both of these particular tribes. Korah is part of Levi's family, it says here in Numbers 16. So he's part of those that are set apart, who are called to be the priests. But Korah's particular family, the Kohaths, they're not the unique priests that enter into the temple. They're what you would call associate pastors or deacons. They, they still have a role in preparing the people for worship, but they don't have the point role in that. And I'm making a little conjecture because Korah ends up complaining here to Moses, like why you and not all of us. But I think Korah's camp is a little frustrated that they don't have a more, quote, quote, important position in worship. Then you have Reuben's kids and grandkids. Now, if you remember studying the Old Testament and the 12 tribes, Reuben is the oldest son of Jacob. And so Reuben should have had the blessing. He should have had the covenant passed down from him, from Jacob, over to Reuben. The line of David should have gone through Reuben. But we read in the book of Genesis that Reuben falls into sexual sin. And he's disqualified by God. In fact, his whole line and legacy is disqualified by God. And so are the next two brothers because they take matters into their own hands without God's direction. And so the line, the, the inheritance, the first son's kind of heirship passes down to the fourth brother, which is Judah. So Reuben's family... I'll show this map again. Is there around the tabernacle, second year out of um, captivity, 
There's probably some people in Reuben's camp who are stewing that they don't have more leadership among the people. We are, our grandfather was the rightful heir. And, and we, we, we should be leading us. We're the direct heirs. We're the ones that deserve this. And then you see Korah. And he's thinking, I should have more uh, titles and responsibilities in worship. And so here's what I'm guessing. I'm making a little bit of a leap here. So follow me with this. I think Korah and these two grandsons of Reuben, I think they hang around the fire pit a little bit. Their camps are near each other. And they're looking over at Moses and Aaron and they're going, what fools. Those are the guys that get to lead us. We could do so much better than that. In fact, we, we have a right to do better than that. We should be the leaders. And they begin to murmur and complain. One little side principle of all this is students particularly, it says in 1 Corinthians, bad company corrupts good morals or good character. Be careful who you hang out with. <laughs> Korah and these brothers form an unholy alliance. And they rally 250 of the most esteemed leaders of the nation to join them. And they show up and have a confrontation with Moses and Aaron. And they say these words, you have gone far enough. They're questioning basically that God has chosen Moses and Aaron to be his spokesperson. In other words, they're questioning, did God really say this? Let me try to explain. In the book of Genesis chapter 3, the Satan approaches Eve. And do you remember his words? He literally says, did God really say this? Remember that? And Eve begins to question, well, well maybe, maybe I misheard. Maybe God didn't say that. And so that's the portal in which evil sin enters the world. Satan's questioning of did God really say this. Now we have here in number 16 another version of that where the people led by Korah and Reuben's grandsons approach Moses and they go, why you? Why are you the one that got the Ten Commandments? Why are you the one that gets to decide what we do and, and how we line up? Why are you the one that God speaks through? We're all qualified to do that. And so they're saying, did God really say this? Same lie, temptation that we face today, right? Marriage is between one man and one woman. Did God really say that? Jesus is the only way to the Father. Did God really say that? Jesus is returning one day. The second coming, the second advent is real. Did God really say that? It's the same temptation, the same strategy that Satan uses today that he used in the garden and that he used here in Numbers 16. Moses, verse 4, if you look in your Bibles, he heard their accusations. He falls on his face and then he challenges Korah in particular. And he basically says, Korah, you've been assigned by God to such a special thing. Why are you abusing that or questioning that? Again, a little side teaching here. 
Let's be grateful for where God's called us. It's so easy to be jealous of somebody else's calling. Look at that Matt guy preaching up there. I could do such a better job than him. Probably you could. <laughs> but, <laughs> but each of us has our own calling and gifting, right? Let's just appreciate that. Here Moses is calling out Korah. God's done so much for you, Korah. Appreciate how God has called you. And so he begins to address Korah and then look down at verse 12. Then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Ibram, the sons of Eliab, these grandsons of Reuben, and they wouldn't come. Verse 13, I have it on the screen as well. It says, is it not enough that you brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but you would also appoint yourself as masters over us? So who's speaking here? It's the grandsons of Reuben. And they're mocking God. In Exodus chapter 3, God prophesied over the people, saying, I will deliver you from the captivity of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to a land of milk and honey. And here, Datham and Ibram are saying, Moses, you're such a bad leader. You took us out of the land of milk and honey. Wow. Mocking God. Poking fun at God's prophecy. That's what these guys were doing. It's a serious thing. And then verse 15. Moses becomes angry. A righteous anger. He says to the Lord, pay no attention to their offerings. I've not taken a single donkey for them. And I've done no harm to them. Moses is saying, like, I'm blameless before the people. Verse 16. Moses said to Korah, you and all your group be present before the Lord tomorrow. And they along with Aaron. And each of you take a censer and put incense on it. And each of you bring his censer before the Lord. 250 censers. Also you and Aaron shall bring his censer. And so we see as we come to this, these verses, we have a good old fashioned censer competition. You ever been in one of those before? <laughs> I don't know why, but this is just in my own mind. Think of like the great British bake-off show or something, right? Like, all right, everybody bring their skills. We're going to have a good old competition right here and, and see who wins. So Korah, verse 19, or verse 18, I should say, they, they took each one of his own censer and put fire on it and placed incense on it. And they stood at the entrance of the tent of the meeting with Moses and Aaron. So this is serious, you guys. This is 250 of the best, uh, strongest leaders in the nation of Israel. This, this son of a Levite, or grandson of a Levite, grandsons of the tribe of Reuben, and they're accusing Moses and Aaron of not being qualified to lead. And they're saying the things that God has said through you don't matter to us. So this is a huge, huge deal. Look what happens again. Verse 20, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves among this congregation, so that I may consume them instantly. Yeah, you read that right. <laughs> but they fell on their faces, Moses and Aaron. And they said, God, the God of the spirits of humanity. Another way to say that, it's the God of the flesh. When one person sins, 
Will you be angry with the entire congregation? Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation. Get away from the areas around the tents of Korah and Dathan and Ebram. So then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Ebram with the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, get away from the tents of those wicked men and do not touch anything that belongs to them or you'll be swept away in all their sin. So they moved away from the areas around the tents of Korah, Dathan and Ebram. And Dathan and Ebram came out and stood at the entrance of their tents along with their wives, their sons and their little ones. Okay, so to set this scene again for us, the best way I can understand is we read this narrative. And again, this is a narrative, so um, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. So as we read the book of Numbers, we're not taking notes going, okay, this is exactly how I should live. (laughs) We're saying, no, no, this shows us descriptive of, of who God is and how he interacts with people. And so Moses, inspired by God, says, everybody back away from their tents. Can you show that map one more time, guys? Uh, Here's the tents here. Moses is saying, inspired by God, okay, everybody else, Simeon, Zebulun, Ephraim, everybody pack up and get away because something's about to go down on these tents. And look at what Dathan and Ebram do. Rather than fall on their faces in repentance, I mean, this is a warning from God. Rather than say, God, we are wrong. We're sorry. We do believe what you say. Rather than do that, look what they do. They stand in front of their tents. In a sense, they're saying, bring it on, God. We're not fearful of you. And then look what happens next. So they moved away from the areas, verse 27, around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Ebram. And Dathan and Ebram came out stood at the entrance of their tents along with their wives, their kids, their little ones. Verse 28. Then Moses said, by this you shall know the Lord has sent me to do all the deeds, for it is not my doing. These men die the death of all mankind, or if they suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings an entirely new thing, and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them with everything that is in theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you'll know that these men have been disrespectful to the Lord. So it's kind of like an Elijah moment. Like, God, show your power. Show these a million plus Israelites who are watching this scene unfold. Show them that this is unmistakably you at work. Verse 31 we see here. God's wrathful judgment. And he finished speaking all these words. The ground that was under them split open. Supernatural moment right here, potentially God using an earthquake. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, their households and all the people who belonged to Korah with all their possessions. And so they went and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol. And the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of their assembly. Then all of Israel who were around them fled at their outcry for they said, the earth might swallow us. And then check this out, verse 35. Fire also came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Let's go ahead and um, close in prayer. Right? (laughs) It's not an easy thing to wrestle with, you guys. 
This is God's wrath poured out on three families, households. You kind of understand that it's um, something that Dathan and Ibram and, and Korah deserved. For they were shaking their fist at God through looking at Moses and Aaron. What's gnarly here though, and I just want to be like so transparent with you, my brothers and sisters. What's crazy about this story is it also included their wives and their kids. How do we deal with that? It's hard. There's some mystery that's involved in the righteous judgment of God. But I've been thinking about this all week. Like what is a word that would just help us understand um, what's happening here? I feel like the Lord gave me uh, this thought. And maybe this will be helpful for you too. Fierce love. This is fierce love in action. In fact, if we really begin to unpack what's really happening here in number 16, we see that it's God's love at work. How can I say that? That sounds so sadistic that, that all these people would die. How, how could this be love? Fierce love. I said my mom and dad are here today. And I want to tell a story about my mom. And I didn't ask her permission. So we, uh, we have a, a, a deal in the Doan household that if I tell a story about one of our kids, I owe them money. So mom, I owe you money <laughs> for this. <laughs> this story doesn't do justice to the weight of this text. But maybe it helps us understand a little bit. Fierce love. Uh, when I was 12 years old, I was on a little league team. And uh, all the kids on the team got together. I think it was probably a birthday party or something. And we just kind of wandered around our little town of Scotts Valley, California. 6,000 people. <laughs> Not a lot to do. And we found ourselves riding our bikes over to the uh, movie theater. And we gathered together. And I guess we all had enough money for this. And uh, we decided to all watch a movie. And it was a PG 13 movie. It was like right when the PG, like the rating systems had come out for PG 13. We were all 12. And so our little band of little league guys were like, let's just all say we're 13. No big deal. So we walk up to the counter. I'm 13. <laughs> Pay our money. And we get in the movie theater. This is before cell phones. Some of the details are fuzzy, but somehow my, I told my mom I'm going to see this movie. And um, she said, okay. So I go in the movie theater. Halfway through the movie, I see a flashlight walking down the aisles. And certainly this couldn't be for me. And I look over, and there is a wonderful 17-year-old movie theater employee and my mom. And they do this <laughs> simultaneously. The seven-year-old was taking a lot of joy in this, by the way. He's like, come here. And in front of all of my Little League buddies, 12 years old, you know, life's a big deal with your friends. I get up. I walk to the aisle. My mom says, this movie is not for you. I looked it up. It's before Google, so I don't know what you did. Maybe 
newspaper review, Roger Niebert, I don't know. Um, this movie's not for you. This is not a good movie for you to watch. I'm taking you home. Oh, I was so mad. I know people sometimes joke, oh, Matt Doan never gets mad. No, I got mad. I got mad. It was years later, though, thinking back to that. My mom risked her reputation with my friends, with the other parents, to go rescue me from something that could potentially hurt me. She was thinking way ahead of the, of the line from where I thought. If Matt watches this and, and there's this scene in there that gets imprinted on his brain that may affect him to then walk into an addiction to something that he's watching constantly that can't break and that's going to affect his marriage one day and that's going to affect how he raises his kids that could actually impact such a great thing that he and his wife will split up and his kids will not have a dad. It's like, Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's what was at stake in a little dumb PG-13 movie. And I'm not trying to be legalistic by saying don't watch PG-13. Like, forget that, okay? Don't, don't hear it like that. But my mom was saying, I'm willing to rescue him out of this to prevent further damage. This is what, yeah. <laughs> I still owe you money. <laughs> Actually, I owe you so much more than that. Um, I think this is a little bit of what God's heart is right here. How do we reconcile that women and kids died? I don't know. It's pretty hard. Augustine or Augustine, the theologian, talks about middle knowledge. And he says, you know, God, outside of time and knowing everything, knew that those little kids would either reject God or accept him. And so his judgment is, of course, because he knew they would ultimately reject him. I don't know. That's one way to deal with it. Still, it's still hard. And yet what we can say here is that God chose some people to suffer and to die to save the rest. Now, ultimately, the reason that we don't get struck down as families today is because God ultimately chose one to die to save the rest. And that's what I want to finish on right here. And this is why verse 48 is going to jump out to you. I only got a couple minutes, so I'm going to go fast right here. But look at verse 41. After all this, the people that lived still were mad. But on the next day, all the congregations of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. They didn't learn. A day later, they're still complaining, even after the earthquake and the fire. I mean, there's still smoke smoldering. And the people have the audacity to still question Moses and Aaron and the God that speaks through them. But then look at verse 46. Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put fire in it from the altar and give incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord and the plague has begun. So God's second wave of judgment here in number 16 begins. But God speaks through Moses to say, I am going to send you Aaron. I'm going to set you apart. The incense that is from your censer is God-ordained. 
And so somehow that's going to satisfy my wrath. This is the only thing that can satisfy me, is what I'm giving Aaron. It reminds me of the only thing that can satisfy ultimately the wrath of God is the blood of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9 says it well. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. Jesus is the ultimate Aaron. Jesus gives us the perfect sacrifice. And then look at verse 47. Aaron took it just as Moses had spoken and he ran into the midst of the assembly. We have to just take a moment to think through this. The people were raising up against Moses and Aaron. They wanted them dead, basically. And here's Aaron, inspired, I believe, filled by the Holy Spirit. He runs into the angry mob, not to kill them, but to save them. This is a portrait of love. This is the portrait of the perfect love. While we're yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And then verse 48, we come to this again. Remember we started with this. And he took his stand. Who's it talking about? Aaron. Aaron took his stand between the dead and the living. And what happened? The plague stopped. God somehow out of his grace used Aaron and his role in the incense coming from his censer to satisfy the judgment of God. Aaron was the mediator between God and man. How badly we need mediators in our culture today, don't we? I'm thinking, I'm a baseball fan, so sad. Right now, Major League Baseball is on a strike or lockout because these two men can't get along. <laughs> That's basically what it comes down to it. The Major League Baseball commissioner and the president of the Players Association. They need a mediator to solve what's going on between them. But that pales into comparison to the ultimate thing that's happening right now in our world, right? We desperately need a mediator between this awful thing that's happening in our Eastern European world. This is on Monday. Pray for these men as you look at their faces right now. This was the Russian delegation on the left and the Ukrainian, or I guess it would be um, on your right, <laughs> is the Ukrainian delegation, Russian on the left. These men met on Monday as well as I think on Thursday to try to have a mediation between what's happening in Eastern Europe. And obviously they couldn't figure it out. Our world is desperately in need for someone to mediate peace. Katie Hedges read it earlier. Ultimately, the mediator we need is Jesus. For there is one God one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, love, and mediator. Verse 48, this is ultimately Jesus. He stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. That's who we get to worship. That's who we get to follow. And I would be doing a disservice if I didn't invite someone to make Jesus their savior right now. Maybe you're in the dead. You're spiritually dead. Jesus is the mediator between the dead and the living. 
when you say, I believe that Jesus is the Lord, the leader of my life, and he is the one that can forgive me of my sins once and for all, you'll transfer from the dead to the living. And the plague of sin in your life is dead, is crucified with Christ. And so this is what I want us to do. We have the privilege to take communion in just a moment. What a perfect passage to do this for. And we're going to remind ourselves of, of what Jesus has done. But I don't want anyone here to miss out on letting this communion be the first time that they've gone from the dead to the living. And so I'm just going to pray. If this is you right now, I want to know that I know that Jesus has forgiven my sins. Simply pray this with me. Let's pray. Father, I acknowledge that I am spiritually dead. I need a mediator. Jesus, I believe that you are the one that can come into my life and forgive me of my sins. And so in this moment, Jesus, I acknowledge you as Lord, as leader. I ask you to save me from my sins, to be my savior. God, bring me from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive in you. This is my prayer. If you prayed that, would you just stand up right now? Just stand up. Everyone else kind of in a moment of worship and quiet, but just stand up. If you just prayed, moving from spiritually dead to life because of Jesus. Just stand up. I just want to pray for you particularly. Stand up right now. That's awesome. Father, thank you for meeting each of us here today. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who've crossed from death to life in this moment. God, would you empower them to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.